talk about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow. to It's Good Except It Sucks, a movie-by-movie and television series-by-television series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time, we're taking a look at Loki, first seen in June 2021, when, if you wanted to look clever in front of your friends, you could have watched Vanderpump Dogs, The Republic of Sarah, or When Nature Calls with Helen Mirren instead. I'm Tim Worthington, and we'll be finding out what I made of Loki shortly. Meanwhile, joining us to give her thoughts on Loki is writer and author Gabby Hutchison-Crouch. Gabby, where can people find you? Hello there. You can find me on Twitter at Scriblet if you like ranting about politics and pictures of cartoon men. Um, uh, or you can find my books. I've written a family-friendly comedy fantasy trilogy called Darkwood Series, which is available at all good bookshops and one evil bookshop. And if you are listening in the autumn, I've got a new book series coming out about ghost hunters called The Rooks. The first book called Wish You Weren't Here will be out in Halloween. At Halloween. <laughs> okay, so before we go any further, Gabby, what happens in Loki? What happens is, once upon a time, there was an alien sorcerer who humans mistakenly believed to be the Norse god of mischief, Loki. His name was Loki. And in the first Avengers movie, he tried to rule the Earth as a fascist. And then in the last Avengers movie, because the Hulk hated the stairs, he grabbed a MacGuffin and disappeared into a time hole. Now he's being brainwashed by some time fascists and has an unrequited crush on himself. He's accidentally broken reality just in time for phase four of the marvel cinematic universe yeah that is quite an interesting bit of setup in it which yeah. <laughs> to be honest with you is interesting because i mean we'll come back to this but it wasn't originally supposed to be in this slot i don't think but we'll come back to all that gabby how much did you know about kang the conqueror before you saw loki <laughs> a little bit because I had the Lego Marvel video games on PlayStation. And in Lego Marvel Avengers 2, Kang the Conqueror is the main baddie. But he's very, very, very silly in that. He just calls everything Kang. He just he does lots of Tannoy announcements where he calls everything Kang. He's just really, really silly. So I'm, I found that he was quite silly again this time. It's hard for me to take him seriously as, as a villain at the moment, just because the only time I've seen him has been in Lego form. Well, I'm just going to say right from the beginning, I mean, obviously, as we'll be discussing, it's introduced a pretty big villain in Kang there are elements in it like the Time Variance Authority like He Who Remains that I'd always thought even with some idea of what was coming even though I'd seen Endgame and knew Loki had disappeared in time in 2012 when he wasn't supposed to and you know in the last season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. where they'd done the thing about branch timelines and mending them and so on I didn't think they would go near any of that I thought Kang would be too complicated to use in the films of the TV series they did it all I was a bit worried and it worked fine I think they found an ideal way of explaining all of this in a way that things like Lost didn't when they did time travel and so on and also I think one of the key things is they must have been so tempted to pepper this with loads of continuity loads of silly bits you know like if you got 20 of the adverts for one division per episode that sort of thing they didn't do any of that it is a proper drama proper funny drama where all this stuff is in the background of it yeah yeah it's, it's a dramedy it's definitely a drama or a very very I don't think there's anything wrong in calling it a comedy it's a comedy with a very very strong narrative 
line. It uses comedy writers, including Bishi Kayali, who we're all incredibly proud of because she's one of us. <laughs> she's, a, she's, a, she's a British comedy writer from this. I don't know her personally, but she's from the same sort of work circles as me. And so I'm like, oh my God, she's doing so well. <laughs> and she wrote episode three, which is one of my favourite episodes. So it does have like lots and lots of comedy talent creating it. Lots of British talent creating it. Loads of British talent behind it, which I think shows, <laughs> especially in the line, I can't sit backwards on trains, which is the single <laughs> most, I think that's the single most British piece of dialogue in an American show ever. I really, really, really love this show. I loved WandaVision because I'm a, obviously I'm a comedy nerd. It's my industry. I just love the changing aesthetic of that. And it looked so stylish and looked so different from what we're used to in the MCU. I really love it when the MCU looks different, like Ragnarok, like like Panther. WandaVision was one of those. And Loki wasn't just aesthetically different. It was so specifically aesthetically my cup of tea that when I saw the trailer once, I went onto your Twitter and told you I wanted to do this podcast because it was like, I'm going to like this. I'm going to love this. I can tell from the decor in this trailer, I'm going to love it because I'm super duper duper into that brutalist mid-century look that it's got. It's so Gilliam-y. It feels more Gilliam-y than Orwellian, even though the Gilliam brutalist dystopian look is taken kind of from Orwell. It's got that surrealist, almost Pythonist twist to it that removes it a little bit from Orwell. But yeah, it reminded me of, it definitely reminded me of Brazil. It reminded me of Time Bandits a lot. Like <laughs> you almost expected the face of God to come floating at Loki going, return the map, return the doohickey that you have stolen from me. And also video games like Portal 2, Stanley Parable. It's dreamlike, sort of nightmare-like sort of look to it with all the also somebody compared it to the Barbican <laughs> so doesn't that look like the Barbican because <laughs> <laughs> it has got that yeah it's concrete and orange and those huge letters and numbers and ah I, it just looks amazing and then I didn't even realise from the trailer because certainly episodes three and five go off on huge adventures that sort of take you away from the TVA and they've got completely different aesthetics of their own which is amazing and I love those aesthetics as well I love the purple moon <laughs> by sexuality and I really love the post-apocalyptic survival nightmare landscape where all the, the apocalypses have happened at the same time so you've got like a smashed up sphinx next to a smashed up Avengers tower and like I say the great thing is they resisted the temptation to go sort of deep into continuity in it I mean one thing that really struck me was amongst many many other things it was a bit set in Vormir from obviously Infinity War or an endgame and a bit set in Ohio which features quite prominently in Black Widow which came out while this was being shown all of a sudden like (laughs) Ohio's become the new Manhattan (laughs) but both those occasions I expected it you know I was thinking oh it's going to tie in here and it didn't and I think it's all the stronger for that yeah it's just a couple of weird things happening in Ohio that's all I think Ohio's become like their go-to place where everything should be normal and the one thing the one real bit of continuity they did do we should just get this out of the way because it sparked a lot of controversy was the tva showed loki the moment when he supposedly killed phil coulson from the first avengers film not the first avenger i should really call it 
like Avengers Assemble to avoid yeah. that, which is what I normally do. But that started people saying, oh, well, that means Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. isn't canon. It's kind of set immediately after that's happened, Loki, when you think about it, because that's where he's just escaped from. Yeah, in terms of his timeline, as far as he's concerned, Coulson's dead. And there's absolutely no reason for Mobius to tell him, oh, by the way, he's fine. <laughs> <laughs> because the whole point of episode one is to give Loki a speed redemption arc. I really like Loki as a character. I think they've been trying to bottle that lightning ever since of having a villain who is a little shit. He's horrible, but he's also so charming and kind of pathetic and a loser. And you can't help but root for him because he's just he's a child, basically. I read somewhere that in terms of Asgardian growth, he's still like a teenager in his brain. And he has this wonderful redemption arc that Loki Prime, who dies at the start of Infinity War, has a beautiful redemptive arc that starts off in Thor 2 and is huge redeemed throughout Ragnarok and then he sacrifices himself to try to save his brother. We've got Loki the little shit, the fascistic little bastard who was the villain in the first main Avengers movie and he's got a lot of redemption to go through before we can start to properly root for him and they do that by showing him his movies in fast motion, just showing (laughs) him the bits that he's in. I sort of like the idea of being shown Thor 2 as punishment. They show him his movies and I think it's part of his redemptive arc to sort of see the suffering that he causes and to see Coulson's death as part of a line of tragedy that is sparked up by him being an arsehole that leads to his mother being killed. And his mother being killed is really the catalyst of his redemptive arc in it's like sacred timeline, if you're going to call it that, for Loki Prime. I think that that is the main spark of his redemptive arc in this one episode where he just has to do it really really quickly there's absolutely no reason for Mobius to go oh by the way Coulson's he's fine you may as well show him that look what you did you little bastard it's like with a dog and you're going look at what you did naughty god Uh, you're not gonna tell the god oh it's okay we cleaned it up and the other thing they do, of course, is, well, he encounters some of the other Loki variants who give him maybe a sense that redemption isn't such a bad arc after all, because <laughs> you got things like, I mean, the one thing that nobody's mentioning is, however briefly, Vote Loki is in there, who was quite a recent version for the comics, which I think it was just before Trump happened. Oh. And that comic is so predictive of what happened. It's alarming. He suffers a suitable <laughs> fate. But the main ones we've got, apart from Silver, who we'll talk about in a minute. There's classic Loki, which had to be Richard E. Grant. It could only be. Kid Loki looks like a spoiled kid at a birthday party, acts like the most adult one of them all. Boastful Loki. (laughs) And the alligator, who is fantastic, but it's not overused. Twitter's favourite character. Yes. The alligator. (laughs) Richard E. Grant did with that character just... Because it's not quite a cameo, is it? He's in it too long to be a cameo. But it's amazing. That part is just... He manages to get so much pathos. He's in it for like 20 minutes, probably, if you count out the scenes where it's Loki making eyes at himself. He's not in it for that long. And there's this weight to him. This is somebody who's lived 
on his own for if he's that old as an Asgardian he must have been alive on his own for tens of thousands of years um he just slumps and he's in this ridiculous get up the original the classic Loki skin like something you've unlocked for doing 10 missions on Loki you unlock the classic skin <laughs> and he looks so Hiddleston would look ridiculous in that outfit like a, a man who's pushing 70 I can't I don't know how old Richard E. Grant is a man of his age in like bright green tights and yellow underpants but they're filthy because he's been in this post-apocalyptic nightmare world for we don't know how long yeah he's got this heaviness to him and this real sadness and he's just so tired but he's also low-key he's also an arsehole he's also prideful and boastful he's the one who always makes these big things about magic you don't need knives you just need magic and he's the one who's always going on about the glorious purpose (laughs) and his final scene is this combination of literal scene chewing because the monster does literally chew the scenery but he's rolling his eyes and doing this pantomime cackling shouting and screaming at the sky in tights while right to the Valkyries play but there's something so small and sad about it. He's laughing, but he's crying as well. I realised, giving it a second watch, there are tears streaming down his face. And he recreates Asgard. And we hear when he's talking in this wonderful sort of Fallout-style bowling alley, this wonderful sort of 1950s bowling alley that's fallen apart in a bunker underground. He's talking about he saw Ragnarok. He diverged at the moment that Thanos arrived. So he's seen Ragnarok, he's seen his world be destroyed, which our variant that we're watching hasn't. He's just read about it and he can sort of compartmentalise that. This is somebody who's been through some real shit and after tens of thousands of years on his own, he creates Asgard as his final act. And it's just such a it's such an act of love for everything that he's lost. It's just so ah He's so good. I love him so much. And the character is amazing. He's managed to combine this patheticness and this sadness with this real pantomime villain, (laughs) villain act swirling around in a yellow cape in tights. It's just incredible. I love it. Well, that's one thing I really love is the way that they go out of their way in the films and TV series to reference things that they won't do, like the original Mm. Loki costume, like the way all the Netflix vigilante characters, there were scenes where, for example, when Luke Cage was escaping from somewhere and was running out with sort of an experimental headband on and grabbing back the clothes (laughs) with a hand and saw his original costume in a car window. They did the cloak and dagger because the dagger's original costume, but they were trapped in an arcade game at one point where it had the original origin story <laughs> being injected with radioactive heroin and they sort of looked at each other like what and i love that they'll do that but yet not treat it as a joke take it seriously make it actually part of it and that's what they did here because like you say the pathos in that loki's character really is heartbreaking Yeah, it really is. He's just so pathetic. And I think that taking him that far really sums up what I think a lot of people find really likeable about Loki. He is arrogant. He is an arse. But he's such a fucking loser. (laughs) And that's what they keep saying. 
saying. They keep saying, we are losers. We're such losers around here. That whole fight in the bowling alley, they are scrapping over nothing. They have got nothing left and they are still fighting each other for this smidgen of power. And the power, all the power is, is they want to be the one who gets to tell all the like, other Lokis what to do in this hell <laughs> where there is nothing. There is nothing left and they're still scrapping over nothing, over pride. The fight is amazing. That's where I started properly. Tom Hiddleston's camp scream when his hand is gnawed off by his alligator self. It's where I started really, really laughing. And then our variant of Loki literally puts his hands in his pocket, starts whistling and sidles off. It is really funny. But it's really sad as well. They're, you know, he's happy to, well, he's not happy to, he's, you know, they are fighting each other to the death over nothing. And of course, there's the main other variant, who's Sylvie, who mm. is partly based on the female Loki in the comics, but also partly based on... I have been wondering where the Enchantress was, because, mm. you know, we've had all the other big-ass Guardian characters, we've even had Lorelei, people like that, and she seemed, like a couple of other characters, a really strange big omission. And I mm. think, obviously, there was some kind of plan. Not saying, you know, they'd had Loki the series planned out since day one, but there was some thinking along those lines of as she stood she would be too similar to too many other villains mm. and there must be something else we can do with her and I think this is a great thing to do because the contrast between them they're, they're losers in different ways the two characters really do complement each other so so beautifully yeah I like that again again we've got another female British talent from a comedy pedigree I also love that she's got a Nottingham accent <laughs> which suggests when she says that she grew up in infinite numbers of apocalypses I like to think that the main one was Nottingham. <laughs> having, <laughs> having grown up not far from Nottingham myself, I think that maybe she grew up in Roxas on a Friday night. And that is, I think, as close to an apocalypse as I can, I can imagine. But yeah, yeah, she's got this real sadness to her as well and a real loneliness. It is a different loneliness that complements Loki's because obviously Loki did have a family, but he felt estranged from most of his family, especially when he found out he was adopted. And Sylvie never had that. We don't know why, maybe simply because she was born female. We don't know why she was taken and her reality was destroyed. I do love that the little scene that we get where she's a little girl and finding out that she's a massive Valkyrie fangirl because she's playing with her dolly and the dolly is Valkyrie. That then created the headcanon in me that Loki's a massive Valkyrie fanboy as well and would also play with dollies and the dolly would always be Valkyrie. <laughs> Valkyrie's doing this, Valkyrie's going to save the day. He doesn't care about Thor. It's like, what does I'd like to see her having a bit more fun. Maybe I'm hoping she's in the next series. I imagine she will be. We get these little sparks of another fun person because Loki is fun and we get these little sparks that she can have this fun as well. You know, when she's teasing Loki, especially when she's teasing him at the start, when she gives up, she, oh, she gives out sweets to children who she knows are going to be proved. That's how they find her. She gives out this kablooey that turns their mouth blue. And I like to think that she gives children sweets that turns them blue because she's a blue baby. <laughs> you know, she, Loki and Sylvie are both ice giants, really. And if you, take yeah. the, if you take the glamours off them, then they're blue. The early scene in episode one where you've got a child in... I don't know what the apocalyptic event is meant to be or whether she's just trying to draw people out to get their reset charges. But when she's giving out 
sweets to this child knowing that the child is gonna she's doing something kind for this child who's gonna get pruned and then you've got mobius who is supposed to be a goodie who's smiling and laughing and saying oh get you back to where you're supposed to be meaning and he knows this meaning i'm going to kill you kid and at this point you're thinking that sylvie is the baddie and no sylvie is handing out sweeties to children who are going to die so we get these little hints of her being fun and the bit where she's sitting chatting to loki in episode five and he gives her a blanket because he's got a crush and he doesn't know what else to do and she makes fun of him for how much like a tablecloth it looks like a table it's not very snuggly and i'd like to see her maybe having a little bit more fun and getting to be a little bit more silly because she's a trick you know she's loki she's a trickster but she's so sad at the moment because she's she hasn't had a brother to sort of annoy and she hasn't had the warriors three and sif to annoy and she hasn't had odin to push back against she's just been on her own and yeah i just really like to see her just getting to be a trickster well big surprise in this jamie alexander appearing as sif albeit very briefly and i didn't know until just now chris hemsworth is the voice of the thor frog oh that's wonderful yeah it sounded like him i literally cheered at the tv when sif came on i was so pleased because i missed her even though it meant that she was spared death in ragnarok i did miss her in ragnarok again it's a little bit too long to be a cameo it is great fun the idea that he's being punished by being repeatedly kicked in the balls by sif and called a loser and a loner. We should also talk about the TVA themselves because, you know, if they'd done them like in the comics, they could have been quite a bland bunch, really, just there to facilitate. But Owen Wilson in particular as Mobius and Mobius just really brought that edge of somebody who's got this incredible responsibility and he isn't really sure what he's doing or why he's doing it, but he knows he's got to do it. Something that I like about when I really like a Marvel story is when they're also telling us a different story when they're doing a little bit of satire this one is definitely about the way that fascism and authoritarianism is packaged and presented to people as a reasonable rational choice the nice people who can still look at themselves in the mirror. That feels like that's what the whole of the TVA is about. These are nice people. A lot of them are just secretaries. (laughs) They're just doing paperwork. But the paperwork that they're doing is about genocide. (laughs) And they are supporting an army of just the look of it, the fashion of it. If it was, they might be giants. The fascists have the outfits. Their clothes are beautiful, (laughs) especially Judge Renslayer, is it? Her clothes are beautiful, but they're so fash. (laughs) It's, It's this combination of 1930s, very, very stylish Nazis and modern militarized police. You know, the American guys who like come out. There's like somebody with a placard <laughs> and so they'll bring out someone in full armor <laughs> holding a howitzer. It really feels like that. Is it Hunter B12? I always just call her Hunter in my head. It's another really interesting aspect of it because she is like the main cop in the show. She's never seen without her armor and she's one of the first to turn because she's shown the truth and Mobius takes a little while to be shown the truth. Interestingly, they have to be shown how the truth has screwed them personally over. They are not swayed by how much it's hurting other people. They are swayed by finding out it's hurt them personally. And the really interesting thing is that Judge Renslayer is not swayed by the truth. And I think that's saying something very interesting, something that is very inconvenient to us at the moment, (laughs) but is true. Because often in narratives, and I've done this as well, because I've written books about fictions, fantasies about fascism, where people find out 
oh, here's the truth behind this. And here's how these people aren't actually on your side. And it's all a big lie. When the judge finds out that it's all a big lie, she compartmentalizes it away. And she says, it cannot be for a lie. That is unacceptable for me. I've done too much. I've gone too far. I have hurt my friends. I have hurt strangers. I have hurt children. And it cannot, it is unacceptable that that was for a lie. So I am going to ignore the truth. And I'm going to go with my feelings, which are my feelings are that this is all still fine. And that feels a lot like a certain uh, online far right conspiracy problem that we've got going at the moment where family members will end up completely ostracized from the rest of their family. And uh, people find it very, very, very hard to extract these people because you can show them the truth as much as you can. You can give them evidence after evidence after evidence that they are wrong, that this is a nonsense conspiracy, but they are too far down to be extracted. And I think that that is saying something very personal and kind of depressing. But something that's pertinent, something that has a truth to it. Well, I think that's why initially people suspected. I mean, initially, Miss Minutes, the anthropomorphic clock, was the runaway success character of it until Alligator Loki appeared. <laughs> but people really, really thought she, in inverted commas, was going to turn out to be the villain because it's a computer-generated entity. It's jolly, clearly not telling you the whole truth. Very reminiscent of remember that paperclip that looked like Jacob Rees Mogg. Yeah. <laughs> up in words and say it looks like you're writing a letter like, go away yes well i will admit that was one of my theories i believe because i believed well so i was a little bit disappointed that the main villain behind it was somebody who hasn't been seeded so i thought it would be somebody who had been seeded earlier on in the show and i thought that either it would be miss minutes or the man who didn't know what a fish was <laughs> miss minutes was just my favorite because as you say she is very jolly she's very mid-century cartoon like the DNA guy at the Jurassic Park thing. Howdy! And she's voiced by Tara Strong as well. Who wouldn't want a big villain who's voiced by one of the Powerpuff Girls? I thought that would do is brilliant. And she did kind of turn out to be a villain. She is aware, she is certainly aware of the truth, she, but she's more like the salacious crumb, isn't she, to, uh, to Ken? <laughs> I love that. Oh, quick shout out to that cartoon in episode one, just how authentic it looked. Yes. That looked amazing. That looked like it was straight out of late 60s Saturday morning TV. It just had that wonky look to it. It was beautiful. I loved it. And yeah, I already knew I was going to like it. But when that cartoon came on, I was like, oh, hello. This is amazing. <laughs> Welcome to the Time Variance Authority. I'm Miss Minutes, and it's my job to catch you up before you stand trial for your crimes. So let's not waste another minute. Settle in, sharpen your pencils, and check this out. Long ago, there was a vast multiversal war. Countless unique timelines battled each other for supremacy, nearly resulting in the total destruction of, well, everything. But then the all-knowing timekeepers emerged, bringing peace by reorganizing the multiverse into a single timeline, the sacred timeline. Now the timekeepers protect and preserve the proper flow of time for everyone and everything. But sometimes people like you veer off the path the timekeepers created. We call those variants. 
Maybe you started an uprising or were just late for work. Whatever it was, stepping off your path created a nexus event, which left unchecked could branch off into madness, leading to another multiversal war. But don't worry. To make sure that doesn't happen, the timekeepers created the TVA and all its incredible workers. The TVA has stepped in to fix your mistake and set time back on its predetermined path. Now that your actions have left you without a place on the timeline, you must stand trial for your offenses. So sit tight and we'll get you in front of a judge in no time. Just make sure you have your ticket and you'll be seen by the next available attendant. For all time. Always. Interesting thing, though, speaking of time and the effect of changing time and so on, is that I can't quite work out where, but this was originally supposed to come in a different place in Phase 4, because, you know, had the pandemic not happened, there would be at least two films first and one division after them. And I think this was always, wasn't it always scheduled to be, I think, sort of April 2021, and then it got put back, obviously, but it's been brought forward a bit. And the implications of that are kind of interesting, because... You know, with it all being so interconnected, I've got my own theories about why everything's going in two different directions at once. You've got, you know, the militaristic characters on the ground and you've got the more spiritual characters, for want of a better word, and presumably the Guardians mm. too, when they come back into it, going in a very different direction. I won't say any more other than that people are familiar with Kang might have some idea of where I'm going with it. But you wonder what got changed. I mean, I have a theory that I've not seen anyone else discuss that Black Widow is missing a mid-credit scene. It was originally there just to do with the way the end credits are laid out which is completely different to any other Marvel film mm. and I wonder if anything was changed in Loki at all because it is just establishing something it's not really spilling into other things as far as we know at the moment yeah, I think so. So I sort of set out what I think the main points of the three big Marvel shows we've had so far are. So WandaVision dealt with the emotional fallout from Endgame and set up Scarlet Witch as a character. Falcon and the Winter Soldier dealt with the geopolitical fallout of Endgame and set up Sam as the new Captain America. And Loki, I feel like, deals with the time travel fallout because they did mess around with time and Loki did slip off into a different place, causing Tony Stark to have to go and have a part to help with his dad and is setting up phase four and possibly phase five as well so i don't know i think it sort of goes in as part of that sort of trio of shows i think it kind of fits in well as being we're going to deal with an aspect of end game that was just sort of brushed under the carpet because we couldn't spend hours and hours <laughs> after all the after all of the adventure going well let's talk about our feelings and it also sets something up for the next load of movies yeah i think it fits you might have had to tweak a few things. And also, it's leading now directly into What If, which is basically showing us a load of other different branch timelines, which really you know, I can't wait for, especially because it's Chadwick Boseman's last appearance. I know. And there's also uh. the fact that at the moment, people are exercised about the fact that it's not Brie Larson voicing Captain Marvel. Now, is it too much of a stretch of imagination to suggest that somebody else might be Captain Marvel in the branch universe? Yeah, possibly. I didn't realise that. I was too busy being really excited by Captain Carter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's like all I could think about. <laughs> <laughs> 
And we should really touch on a really important thing in Loki, which has not really been highlighted as much as it should have been, which is really Loki becomes the first openly bisexual character in any Marvel property. I mean, there was originally a scene in Ragnarok, which ended up deleted because it, you know, the, the whole scene dragged it down. Apparently Disney <sighs> were fine with it being in there. You know, it, really? We should say it was Valkyrie. It was bisexual <laughs> in the comics. And obviously Deadpool is coming into the MCU yeah. and <laughs> he got there first with everything. Every- well, I mean, Deadpool hasn't been caught in the movies. I don't think Deadpool's been confirmed as Pam. It's he hinted at. He hasn't said so, though. And, well... So I'm bi. I didn't come out as as bi properly until I was 39. So kudos to having somebody come out at the age of 1,000. (laughs) (laughs) We love the older (laughs) bi's. That episode is, well, first of all, I love that episode (laughs) with the bi-lighting moon. So another thing I love about Loki is the lighting. And there's this thing called bi-lighting. Because the bi-pride flag is pink, purple and blue, it's a great palette and it goes really well with lights. (laughs) So often when somebody is coded bisexual, you will have this so-called bi-lighting, which looks very neon. It looks very sort of 80s, summer evening. And episode three is just just absolutely full of it i mean the the planet is purple (laughs) and then they have this whole sort of chase scene through like a neon palace of horrors (laughs) i did really like that we've got a titular character in marvel and somebody who has been around in the mcu for over a decade and is incredibly popular that they did come out and and say yeah this guy is not heterosexual (laughs) however (laughs) he doesn't say bisexual And this is something that is a bee in my bonnet. But when they show bisexual characters and they never quite able to say it. I mean, I know he's got the word sex in it, but still, (laughs) so is heterosexual. (laughs) So he does say a bit of both to mean, hey, guys, I'm bi, and then suggest that Sylvie is also bisexual. But I really... And also, straight after that episode had come out and all the buyers were going, hooray, a crumb of representation. Disney turned around and went, yeah, but we're not giving him a boyfriend ever. He's never going to kiss a man. He's never going to fancy a man. That's your lot. It's like, oh, thanks. And I really understand the frustration. I feel a lot of that frustration that they're okay sort of giving us this crumb, Mm. but it still kind of feels like there's a lot of, I'm going to say cowardice, (laughs) because they want to maybe they want to to sell their films to groups or even countries where that is still seen as taboo even though it's 2020s and they give us these Disney are always doing this they're always giving crumbs saying hey you guys this movie's got like Disney's first ever openly gay character in it and it's like some villain who like looks at a man for two seconds and they're like there you go wasn't that wonderful wasn't that special happy pride and it's like no you just you did that there's the, the the character in Endgame that they made a big thing about hey we've got our first ever openly gay man in it and it's a man without a name <laughs> In in the support group, yes, who mentions, yeah. who says the word he when talking about his date. Now that is very very easily retranslated to she 
in the subtitles or in the dub. It's, yeah, it's, I mean, there's also the gender fluid thing, which was even more of a misdirection. Now, I'm pretty sure most of my knowledge of Norse mythology is from Joanne Harris. So (laughs) I'm pretty sure that Norse canon Loki is both pansexual and gender fluid. I don't know about the, the comics, but so there was this real excitement as well as in saying that he's bi. There is a blink and you miss it moment where on his paperwork after he'd been arrested, it has his sex down as fluid. And people got really excited. It's like, he's gender fluid. That's canon. And then that was a massive misdirection. And they clearly just meant we know about Sylvie. Because in episode five, he asks, have you ever heard of a woman version of us? And they went, ew, no, a girl. Ah. So <laughs> he's obviously not actually this low key that we know is not gender fluid. It's just that there is a variant of him that is not male. <laughs> which is that was really disappointing so yes it is important and thank you for those crumbs disney they are delicious crumbs but i was hoping for a whole slice of pie pie and i it was not served i just had to pick the crumbs (laughs) (laughs) however crumbs are better than nothing And also, they could be very self-congratulatory in history review writing, because I was, I was open-mouthed at some of the promotion of the Falcon of the Winter Soldier, which, you know, I loved. I loved everything about that, but saying it's the first time we've explored black issues. And I thought, <laughs> even aside from the fact that, what was Luke Cage? Was he white, was he? The whole film, Black Panther. Black Panther. You know, and that even comes into, you know, the scenes in Wakanda in Infinity War as well. To an extent, that plays a part in that. Why will they do it like this? I don't... Yeah, yeah. People are going to notice. I mean, we're talking in a country with a prime minister who does that every day and all he says, <laughs> do you not think people will notice? But... In fact, he, you know, he literally will dance with a pride flag and then refuse to retract things he wrote 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, it felt it felt very much like a Tory happy pride. <laughs> <laughs> happy pride, that's your lot. <laughs> but anyway, I'm glad he's by, and I hope that Disney or that whoever's running it is visited by three queer ghosts on Christmas Eve, <laughs> it changes their minds. <laughs> But I don't ship Sylvie Loki. It's weird. <laughs> <laughs> and Sylvie doesn't. Sylvie is not into him. Like, every time he gives her googly eyes, she's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's a lot younger than her. I think she's been doing this for a lot. She might be like 2,000. He's like this 1,000-year-old teenager. And she's like, oh, God, kid boy me really wants to have sex with me. And it's so weird. <laughs> Well, of course, the actual big bad, as we've alluded to, is, well, we don't know yet whether it will be Kang the Conqueror or just Kang. What's interesting is, because there were rumours flying around that Kang would be the big bad. I remember us talking about this on Twitter, and I think we both Mm. felt that would not be a good idea, which is interesting. I mean, my take was that, like I say, I always felt Kang was a very complicated character to drop in. And I have visions of it being, you know, sort of the big reveal at the end of episode six. It is I, Kang the Conqueror. Mm. And everyone's saying, what? Who? Yeah. Well, you know, like yeah. ruining the whole series. And yeah, what, that's what you... I was worried about. 
Yeah, and yet I love the fact that they introduced him in this long, rambling, wordy way where it got a lot of quite sinister conversation, but sinister in a friendly way for him to get round to the fact of who he was and what he was doing. That's how you introduce a character like that. It's better to sneak, no matter how well-known comics fans might think these characters are, they're not, you know, they're not well-known to the general public. It's better to bring them in as a character, like with Monica Rambo, and then say, oh, hang on, this happens to them, or this is what yeah. they actually do. And I think they pulled it off with this. I think people were waiting to see where it goes next in terms of this weird, weird man that showed up in the final episode. I think it helps that the way he's written and the way he's performed is incredibly charismatic and very, very likeable straight away. I think it also helps that episode six is such a bookend. It really complements episode one. Both episode one and six have got these huge, long sit-down chats in them. (laughs) And they talk about fascism in both talks. And in episode one, you've got Loki, who's advocating for fascism as an alternative to free will because the little people are too stupid to have free will. And in episode six, you've got Kang advocating for fascism as an an alternative for chaos. There is another great truism about the way fascism and authoritarianism is presented as a reasonable choice to people. I alone can fix this. It's this or absolute chaos. If you think this is bad, the alternative is much, much worse. These are all things that despots use to control people. These are all fears and arguments that despots use to retain control. And you've got Loki being, well, both Lokis being the ones who say, no, we're not doing this. We have both had arcs (laughs) that show that we oppose fascism. So Loki seems to, our Loki isn't sort of down for chaos completely, but he's sort of trying, he seems to be trying to find a third way. (laughs) (laughs) between fascism and just war whereas Sylvie's like no it's time for you to die I'm too mad it is interesting to sort of introduce him as this sort of almost a sort of other side of Loki it's it's somebody who's sort of come out the other side so Loki was a fascist but I think he's mostly a fascist at that point because he's having a hissy fit because of Odin which is again is such a teenage incel thing to do it's like (laughs) I can't get any just respect from my dad that's it i'm turning into a nazi (laughs) and he's he's had a little bit of growth since then go oh god that was an awful thing to do but we've got somebody who's come out at the end of time and is like well it's fascism or chaos chaos with that millipond (laughs) yeah Chaos with Ed Miliband. When I was rewatching episode six, I compared it to Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> it's like, so he offers, yeah, he offers Loki and Sylvie the Chocolate Factory of fascism. But it's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory if Charlie went, no, you just maimed all those kids, you <laughs> monster. <laughs> what? I don't want your stupid death. Factory. It's such a character study that he says it's a character study. That's an, another really interesting thing about Kang. He seems to be winking through the fourth wall at us all the time. I also liked that there was a twist that I thought, so I thought the twist was going to be, hey, the villain is somebody who's been seeded, but maybe everybody could see that coming. I liked that the twist was that all the way through the time that they'd been sort of outside of the sacred timeline, they thought that, yes, this is awful and we're running away from these despotic 
psychotic time police and Loki has been seriously I honestly think Loki's been seriously brainwashed by them but at least we've got free will because we're out of the sacred timeline and then you find out that they don't they have not had free will all this time because Kang has seen it all up to this one point right at the end of his talk where he went well now you've got free will (laughs) so I really, I, I did like that that was the actual twist, that they never had free will that whole time. And isn't it interesting that, I mean, a large, if not all of this, a large part of it must be coincidence, but the fact that in some ways it's all about people who, for the good of others, are self-isolating. And the people who are telling them to do that have no interest in getting them out of there at all. Yes, definitely. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was filmed during lockdown because I most of it was. That, yeah, I heard that the scene in episode one where he was in a queue that was like a little bit Beetlejuicey, where he was in like a queue of the prune, was supposed to it was supposed to be quite a full hall, but because of Rona, it was just him and this other guy, and it made it so much better. It made it really nightmare like this big hall with this massive long snaking queue, and there's nobody there. <laughs> it's just take a ticket and wait, and that. Felt very Beetlejuicy. Oh, the other breaking the fourth wall thing that I like, besides Kang at one point just saying, right, well, here's the bit where we show how far your character has developed. <laughs> he sings Amen and he sings it in key with the background music that's already happening, which is, I mean, the music in it is fantastic another British female talent I I think again with comedy connections the music in it is so beautiful and there's this yeah while he's talking there is this sweeping angelic music and he sings Amen and it is in key and in time with the music that was already playing when he was speaking and it's that was a real sort of you are not quite in this world you are I almost feel like he's aware of us (laughs) Well, speaking of breaking the fourth wall, I really love the fact that the post credit scene in the last episode was literally season two being rubber stamped. Mm. Yeah, we were all waiting. I was waiting for like something a bit fun. It was like, no, <laughs> season two's coming. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> OK, well, there's only one thing left for me to ask now. Gabby, if you had the ability to prune variants for the timeline, what would you use it for? <laughs> Well, the whole point of it is that you're not supposed you're not supposed to, isn't it? Supposed to are we? That was a big question that's left behind. Is surely the natural way of the universe is for it to have all these branching timelines? They only all got pruned because Kang started invading other different Kangs started invading different universes. The natural way of things is it's supposed to you're supposed to let it grow like a beautiful bush. That's so a very I, long-winded way of saying Boris Johnson. <laughs> I don't know. I might. Oh, God. I might go back and get the person who did the internal combustion engine because burning dinosaurs turns out to be a really bad idea. (laughs) (laughs) That was not the answer I was expecting. (laughs) Thank you and Excelsior. If you've enjoyed this, don't forget you can find more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks and plenty more besides, including details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me at timworthington.org.